to Up the Union podcast. My name is Dan Hames and this week I'm speaking with Kyle Strobel. Kyle is an assistant professor at Talbot School of Theology where he teaches spiritual theology and formation. He's the director of Metamorpho Ministries and he's the author of a number of works on Jonathan Edwards amongst other things. Kyle, thank you so much for being with us this week. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I'm excited. (laughs) Great. You wrote an article for our website about the experience of God we have now and the experience of God we will have in the life of the age to come. And I wanted us to dig into that a bit together this week. Um, And the first question I'd like to ask is really about the presence of God. Um, It's a subject that we talk about in church. Um, Sometimes people will talk about it in regard to corporate worship. Sometimes people even in the marriage in a marriage service will say, in the presence of God, I make this vow. How are, we, how are we supposed to navigate that language, bearing in mind that one day we will be with the Lord in a way that we aren't now? How, how do you think we should speak about the presence of God? Yeah, yeah I think it's important. I think it's, it's also very, um, it, it's, it's important to kind of assess how we're doing it now. As you said, we, the language of presence, and, and the way I see this playing out, at least in the context I'm more, most familiar with, is that we start talking about presence in terms of an experience, and we start, and I think this is very dangerous, we start creating experiential kind of programmatic um, worship services to try to generate certain kinds of emotions. Mm. And we usually try to name those with God's presence. And when you look at Scripture, you know, one of the, the, the categories I think that is the most neglected in modern discourse is God's presence, actually. We, we do talk about it now, but usually, as you mentioned, it's, it's kind of tied in with liturgy maybe in certain kind of ways. It's tied into a building, actually, an architecture in certain very interesting ways. And then we, we kind of start delineating what is sacred space versus non-sacred space. And um, you even get this. Um, I've been reading on the side um, some psychologists who talk about um, the nature of what is kind of unclean versus clean in our consciousness. And it's interesting when you look at the church, if someone who might swear regularly, um, you know, down at the pub or something, Mm. when they go into a church building, they suddenly hesitate to. And that's interesting, right? And, And there's something about that that maybe is okay, that maybe there's something at least semi right about that, that we recognize that there's this space was created for something different and I should respect that. But I think ultimately it misses what Scripture is doing when it talks about sacred space. The Bible is filled with it. Um, I think when you look at Genesis 1 with the creation account, um, I would follow someone like G.K. Beale and the several scholars who have noted, um, including John Walton, that, look, this is, this is a description of God's creation of a temple. And the Garden of Eden is a is kind of the holy of holies where God can be present in a very specific kind of way to his people. And that Adam and Eve were called as kind of high priests of this place, you know, and they um they were called to expand this into the chaotic realm outside. And after the fall you see God constantly entering in. Um he enters in in, in the Babel at judgment, God and then God came down as the centerpiece of that story, of course. But then he enters in with his people through Abraham, and he tabernacles among them. We get get temple imagery. And, of course, temple and tabernacle is all spatial terms. It's delineating God is here, 
And by here, we mean very specific kinds of things. And with the temple, you have these kind of spheres of holiness. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, there was a recognition that Israel was the holy land. And holiness is a spatial term biblically. Because then you have the holy city, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. You have the temple mount, which was specifically holy. The temple courts, which were more holy. You have the holy place, which is moral. And so you get this sense that there's all these spheres of holiness radiating out mm. from where God's presence was. But then Christ reorients this whole thing around himself. He is the holy place. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the temple is no longer delineated by impressive stone buildings as much as Jesus' disciples were in awe. If you remember they're leaving the temple and they say, Rabbi, look at the size of these stones. And of course, Jesus goes on to kind of say, yeah, these are going to be all torn down in your lifetime. Right? And so Jesus is reorienting what it means for God to be present with us. And if we kind of stop there and then set our minds into the future, at the very end of Revelation, we get the vision of the new Jerusalem descending. And now the entire kind of conception of what it means for God to be present with us is kind of seen in its fulfillment, which is that there's a city that has no need of temple because God's presence saturates that place. We're told God Almighty and the Lamb are the light of that world. So there's no need of sun or of moon to light that place. Hmm. And the image of light in Scripture is important in this regard because what light is kind of referencing is not simply that something is being revealed, although that's certainly true, um, but as God reveals himself, and his presence to us, everything else becomes illumined. I think there's this notion of eternity that maybe we are kind of floating statically staring at things. Whereas biblically speaking, what, what God's presence does, God's presence creates society. The difference is that it creates a society whose economy is love, rather than a society whose economy is something like power, which... I think would be said more accurately about our societies. Hmm. Um, our societies are fueled by domination, by power structures, power dynamics. Um, and if you look at the Bible, I mean, the powers and principalities language comes in here quite rapidly. Um, we, to quote James, we follow the way from below, which is earthly, unspiritual, and in fact, demonic. The way from above, which is going to be the way of the new Jerusalem functions differently. And so in our context, we'll, now, as we kind of set our minds on the New Jerusalem, we realize the church as a people group who are united to Christ by the Spirit are the building blocks. And I love the image Christ used here because Christ, of course, was a stonemason. We, we have this weird notion that Christ was a carpenter as if he's, you know, going to the, you know, carrying lumber around and with big saws and things. And I mean, Christ primarily works with stone. I mean, that's what a carpenter and stonemason would have done in his day. And the word's the same for both vocations. And you think about the implications of this. Um, his disciples are impressed with the big stones. And the actual stonemason is sitting there and he says, you know, I've got more impressive stones that I'm working on. And he's looking at his disciples. He changes Simon's name to Rock and then spends the rest of Simon's life forming this Rock Peter to fit alongside himself, which he, who he calls the cornerstone. I am the cornerstone. And so he's forming these disciples so that they'll fit as a foundation of a new kind of temple building, so that God's presence in his glory can descend and be with his people. And at Pentecost, we see that 
we see the Spirit's descent filling up this group, no longer focusing on spatial locations specifically, but as wherever God's people are, there's this, there's this kind of tabernacling that is going on. Even when we get into kind of 2 Corinthians 12 language, one of the interesting things about 12, 9, and 10, you have this passage where Paul is, is hearing from Christ after he prays to take the thorn away from him. And God says, no, of course. Jesus is, is, is kind of uninterested in just kind of healing Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The very next line, he makes clear kind of what the purpose of this whole thing is. Like, why is it that he's not taking these things away? And he goes on and he says, um, I will more gladly boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. But that, that language of rest upon me is tabernacle. So that the power of God will tabernacle among me here. And the implication is as the church, it is in our humility, in our embracing of weakness, the truth of ourselves and utter dependence upon God that the glory of God tabernacles among us here. And so instead of thinking of presence as, you know, the spaces we create in church buildings or even like liturgical spaces, although I think there's, there's very important things about both of those, the main focus is as we embrace the way of Christ, which is the way from above, in humility and in our weakness and the truth of who we are, what we're doing is we are kind of receiving who God is so that he will tabernacle among us. And in scripture, you know, biblically speaking, the image of I am opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble as a consistent kind of motif all throughout scripture. This is what we see in Paul's life going on. And so being in God's presence is receiving the way of Christ. The wisdom of God, Paul will argue in first Corinthians is receiving this, this cruciform reality of life. And so, I think we need to tweak our language here to, to kind of recall what does it look like now to be in the presence of God? It, it means having Christ's very own spirit upon us so that his way becomes the way we engage reality, anticipating that the city of love is, is kind of where our eyes are on the horizon. That's, that's what we're awaiting for. That's where our hope is in, yeah. that when Christ returns, a new kind of society will function. But of course, by now we see through a glass darkly. So what we embrace by faith is this way of Christ here. Okay, so what you're saying is um, being in the presence of God isn't so much about being in a particular place or even about having a particular experience, but it's uh, this kind of everyday nuts and bolts reality of the church embracing the way of Jesus and living it out together, um, looking forward to the day that we meet him, and that that is the presence of God among us. That's right, yeah. I mean, there's there's, there's definitely individual aspects to it, because it's calling us to a specific kind of way, kind of before the very face of God, right? a way of life, a way of engaging reality, a faithfulness of trusting in the way of Christ. But then I think there's also very important churchly implications to this as well. Um, what does it mean to be God's people in light of his, his, the specific kind of presence we know in Christ? Um, and it's, it's certainly much more than a, kind of generating a worship experience but it entails a certain kind of way, a certain kind of approach to reality. And it's, it's very easy to try to generate an experience for people. Mm. It's much harder to call people into the body of Christ, the very temple of God, um, because that means we have to be formed as, just as that 
that, that's, that stone Peter was formed to kind of rest along Christ. We have to be formed in such a way as to kind of fruitfully participate in this people of God. And oftentimes that, that entails things we don't want. Um, we, we want an experience. And I think in our modern context, one of the, the greatest idolatries is the idolatry of experience. Um, we, we tend to be less interested in God and much more interested in experience of Him. And that's it's one of the great idols, I think, that we have to face today. Being in God's presence entails being called into account before God. And it means that we embrace the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. Um, that's something distinctively different than trying to leave church feeling a certain kind of way. But I think that's often what we what we accept. Thank you, Kyle. That's a challenging message. We're going to talk some more tomorrow about the idea of seeing God. What does it mean that we will see God in the future? And how can we speak about seeing him now by faith? So do tune in again tomorrow on Up, the Union podcast. (laughs) 